If you would like to buy your own copy of the Guide to the Psychology of Eating, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35, followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Lean Chafee is Associate Teaching Professor of Psychology at the University of Washington in the US, and Stephanie P. De Silva is a Psychology Professor at Columbus State University in the US. Together, they are the co-authors of the Guide to the Psychology of Eating. In part two of our episode, we delve into the relationship between public policy and societal thinking about food, as well as how our perception of food habits and diets are tied up in race, class, gender, age, and more. Then we chat with the authors about fat phobia and how we can decrease the prevalence of disordered eating and what the future of social perceptions of food might look like. Take a listen. If we are thinking about how food and what how people can access food is affected by race, class and gender and so on, I'm just wondering about, obviously like all of these different foods will have different physical and like to an extent, I suppose, brain development, like mental outcomes and so on. In general, how does food affect our like behavior and psyche? Is there like diet that is optimal for the human brain? Because I suppose if we're thinking about how food accesses mean different outcomes, health outcomes for people, then I was just wondering if there's like a particular diet optimal for the human brain, because food does affect our like behavior and, and, and psyche, I think. For example, if you don't eat food, everyone knows that you get, for example, grumpy or hangry. But yeah, I was just wondering like, is there a particular diet that's optimal for the human brain? That is a great question. So our brain is about 2% of our adult body weight, but it uses 20 to 25% of our energy. So it's this very needy organ. And this is an important evolutionary trade-off that we have. We can support our large needy brain because we cook our food and cooked food is more efficient. We can get more calories and energy from it in a shorter period of time. Think about how easy it is to eat, you know, a cooked root, like a carrot versus a raw ones, all this time chewing. Okay. On top of that, it's very difficult to do true experiments to study the outcomes related to diet because there's many uncontrolled variables in the natural world. And additionally, when we ask people what they eat, it's hard for them to report it accurately. Maybe they don't know what their portion sizes were or what the makeup of their meal was. It's hard to remember what they ate in the past. Or even there's this role of social desirability, right? Who's disclosing that they ate an entire pizza, even if they know that it's just going to the experimenter. So it's really difficult to collect great data on what people eat out in the world, which means it's difficult to understand what an optimal human diet is. There is a researcher that has recently done a few randomized controlled crossover studies in a laboratory setting where he gave individuals different diets. They had ad-lib access, so they could have as much as they wanted throughout the day. And he measured you know, metabolic and health outcomes. This is Kevin Hall. And the two examples that I can think of off the top of my head, one was a randomized controlled study to look at the difference between an ultra-processed diet and a more unprocessed or regular diet. And what I think is really notable about this experimental design, it was very elegant in that neither of the diets were complicated. It wasn't fancy preparations. It was, you know, like chicken and rice and vegetables, like very straightforward meals. And even with a two-week study, two weeks on each, the ultra-processed diet or the unprocessed or more, you know, regular home-cooked diet, there's 
pretty significant health outcomes. The individuals in both situations had access to as much food as they want. You know, they were served similar portions, but then they got to go back and get more, or they could get more snacks if they wanted later. And during the ultra-processed manipulation, the participants ate more, they gained more weight, and they felt less satisfied. Whereas in the unprocessed group, their weight stayed the same or went down a little bit. Other, you know, health outcomes like blood glucose and heart outcomes were good, were better in that the unprocessed diet. And they felt more satisfied. They felt like, oh, I had plenty to eat. So that was the first of the two studies. The second of the two studies is comparing a trendy paleo type diet with one that includes more, you know, grains and fruits and vegetables. And again, there we see, despite the fact that there's many folks who are proponents of these, you know, paleo ketogenic type diets, we see that the diet that has the excess of fresh fruits and vegetables and grains and a little bit less animal protein had better outcomes in this two week randomized controls trial. So it's difficult to identify what the optimal diet is for humans because it's difficult to collect information on this. We have few randomized controlled trials, but from those, we see that obviously fresh fruits and vegetables and lean proteins and less processed is better. However, these aren't fancy diets. These are very straightforward diets that could easily meet kind of cultural rules and guidelines for many global cuisines. So we all have felt like this. It's a long day. We know it's time to eat. And we're so hungry and we're mad and we're in traffic and it's just the worst feeling, right? And you would easily be identified as hangry. However, the research isn't as obvious when it comes to this idea of, you know, kind of self-control or willpower in eating. Think about it this way. When, you know, how many hours do you have that pass between breakfast and lunch versus how many hours pass between dinner and breakfast? And we don't typically wake up in the morning feeling very hangry, even though it's likely been many more hours since we last ate. So this idea that we have low energy reserves or low blood glucose leading to this outcome of hanger or, you know, kind of low willpower doesn't really make sense if we compare that we don't eat our meals at equal intervals. Much of our hunger is conditioned, right? We call it Pavlovian conditioning of hunger. We are hungry because we know a meal is coming and our body is preparing for that meal. So when my morning class wraps up, I'm feeling very hungry because I know I'm going to go eat lunch in the, you know, before my afternoon class, even though far fewer hours has passed from breakfast than passed when I ate breakfast that morning. This research is a little bit disputed. There is some research to support kind of an energy model of willpower or motivation, the idea that hunger is a valid construct. But then there's another body of research that doesn't support it. And that other body of research we call the motivational model to think about self-control or willpower. This motivational model is the idea that our beliefs about our hunger or our willpower and the idea that, you know, our belief that when we're hungry, we're really, you know, sensitive to the fact that our self-control can be depleted, this influences our self-regulatory capacity. So while glucose and food is very crucial to human functioning, we can take comfort to know that our capacity to regulate our willpower is not so fragile that it's dependent on our immediate energy availability. So we can feel better to know that that hunger, while it's motivating us to eat, it doesn't mean that we can't function until we have time to go ahead and eat. I'm glad you said that last bit because... (laughs) I mean, obviously, we've all heard of, you know, the the Pavlovian reaction, et cetera, et cetera. But you just imagine that you're not like an animal, like a, like a dog, basically. You're just like, I have some control over when I can and can't eat. 
but oh no but that is really interesting though where like your body is like preparing itself for like it's this is like the meal time we have some slightly more fun questions but also ones that i think relate to like what we've talked about already i was just wondering about we've talked about how culture like influences and also like you know where you live as well like societal policies and so on affect like cultural value but how does just like pure geographic like location and climate for example influence cuisine so for example why do hot climates you know there's quite a lot of like spicy cuisine around those regions so speaking personally like my parents are from malaysia and there's like a huge variety of cuisines there but a lot of them like use like spices and also heat like chili as well Yes, great question. So these researchers, Paul Sherman and Jennifer Billings, looked at, did an analysis of cookbooks. And they, I mean, it was like thousands of cookbooks from all over the world, looking at the ingredients in meals and specifically the seasonings, spices, and flavorings that were used. And then they mapped the presence of spicy chilies, hot kind of food, is more geographically distributed in hot regions. And so there's a variety of hypotheses about why this could be. Obviously, we can't go back in time and ask the individuals that were developing early cuisines why they included it. But in general, the most accepted hypothesis is that these spices and seasonings, and particularly the blends that are used, have antimicrobial and antifungal properties. So they're very important for food safety. In places where refrigeration and food spoilage is more of a problem, there tends to be more spices because that helps to preserve the foods and to protect people from foodborne pathogens. And I think the synergistic effect of them is especially notable in this research. Common combinations like mixes that from the basis of curries or lemon and pepper together, those together have more antimicrobial and antifungal properties than they do individually because they're synergistic when combined. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I was thinking more like, honestly, sort of like culturally. And again, this is quite specific, to be honest. A lot of like cultures from where like around my parents are like a lot of the time, if it's hot, they'll it's usually encouraged to like eat something hot or drink something hot because, you know, I'm always told, oh, it's cooling, like in a weird kind of like contrasty way because you start to sweat. But yeah, like obviously like antimicrobial and like the way that you can't like refrigerate stuff is a factor. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And I think those aren't exclusive, right? There can be like values that exist that encourage people to consume certain foods at certain times that complement this also, you know, antimicrobial explanation for food safety. Yeah. No, that's so good. Ah, I'm very pleased to hear that. This is completely like off the list again. Do you have like a particular, like, are you a fan of spicy cuisine? Yes, absolutely. Do you have a particular favorite? In Seattle, there is a great deal of Vietnamese food. And so I'm particularly fond of Vietnamese food. Yes. Fantastic. Yes, very good choice. This is a fun one. This is something that I think we, I was looking at like through the book and also through like some of the other questions from colleagues. There seems to be like a differentiation between the words flavor and taste. And that's not something that I've like ever thought about before. So I was just wondering like if you could explain that to me, because like obviously like linguistically, I kind of like, and I think a lot of people use that interchangeably. So I was just wondering if you could talk me through that. Right, of course. So if we consider conventionally how these words are used, when we talk about someone's 
taste, we're also maybe thinking about their ability to evaluate aesthetic type pursuits. But in psychology, we use it really specifically. When we say taste, we typically mean gustation or the sense of taste. So the detection of you know chemicals on the tongue that is then transmitted to the brain and is represented in the primary gustatory cortex. So when I say taste, I'm thinking less of how it's used conventionally and more of our sense of taste from our mouth and our tongue. Flavor in the psychology of eating depends, of course, on our sense of taste and our, on our sense of smell, because these are dependent entities, as well as our other senses, right? It matters how food looks, right? People say you eat first with your eyes. And also the texture matters. If we're trying to eat something that's supposed to have one texture and it has another, like it's stale, it can be off-putting. The sound that matters goes along with the texture. The temperature can obviously influence the aroma and thus the taste and smell. But it's more than just taste and smell and our other senses. There's also, again, these higher psychological processes that influence our perception of flavor. The context, our emotions, the company that we can eat with, the environment that we're in, all of these things can have an influence on the flavor of food. It's obviously more enjoyable to sit down and eat lunch with friends than it is to shovel a sandwich in your mouth over a sink when you're busy between meetings. And so there's all of these other psychological factors that matter in how we perceive the flavor of an item. Okay, now that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I'm saying that a lot, but like honestly, like I, th- I don't think it's a lot of, when it comes to things that we're talking about with, which involve the psychological processes around food i don't think that's something that like people think about or articulate a lot so for example flavor and and taste oh that is fascinating but obviously like yes it it does make a lot of sense like smell and the occasion on which you eat food we're all experts in eating right every person has all of this experience with it and all of these intuitions and values and those are all extremely valuable and that's one of the reasons it's so fun to think about and talk about the psychology of eating I think this is something that is actually kind of like an odd thread through this. We talked about like the marketing, social media, like the perception of food. When I think about like food writing and what people are like talking about with regards to food, obviously there are still like the traditional things like cooking shows and like cookbooks. But I think as we know, like the internet has meant that a lot of people go for recommendations through like Instagram or more lately TikTok. And then also things like newsletters, for example, there's one that I read called Vittles. These are all like now very influential in how we see food, like where we go to eat, like what you recommend to like friends and family. And I was just wondering, besides social media, the internet and so on, what do you think the future of, this is again, quite broad, what do you think the future of social perceptions of like food in general looks like besides, because you know, like for the last sort of couple of decades now with like globalization certainly in places like the US and the UK it's it's not just about sustenance anymore it's about something that you enjoy with friends or family and so on so I was just wondering what you think like the future of general social perceptions of food would go perhaps yeah that's a great question and i wish i could see the future for sure i'm very comforted by the increase in attention to details around food and eating and particularly the ethics of food and eating in pop culture in social media in newsletters on tiktok etc the contemporary foodie movement despite the fact that it's sometimes criticized from my perspective, seems to be moving us in a better direction. The average person has a lot more well-defined values around what they eat and how they eat and how they spend their money around food-related pursuits today than they did even 10 years ago, much less 20 and 30 years ago. 
I think that attention has the potential to, you know, elevate the ethics of how we treat food workers. It has the potential to question the biases that we have about certain people and certain foods that come together. It has the potential to build more connections between different groups of people because we live in you know multi-ethnic societies and we can form communities beyond people who look like us. However, obviously the word it's not all you know positive and optimistic. I don't think that social consciousness is equally available to everyone. The pursuits of the contemporary foodie type culture tends to require a certain amount of free time. It takes time to access this information. And the average, you know, middle income worker in the US has more than one job. And I'm sure there's, you know, similar pressures for low and middle income workers in much of the developed world. And so, yeah, this contemporary food ethos, while it has a lot of benefit, is not equally available to everyone. Obviously, if we elevate the way that we think about food systems and food workers, that could have great potential to improve the livelihood and well-being of a big portion of our workforce. We don't see that everywhere. In addition to these ethical implications and you know moral implications for how we think about food and the people in food systems, we also need to think about globally, large scale, what our food system means for the future of our planet, of course. And we know that many of our practices today aren't going to be supportive of the longevity of our planet and directly contribute to climate change. However, the individuals that are you know passionate about this are not necessarily the ones that make the decisions. And so that leaves us in a place where it's difficult to redress these issues. In addition to these concerns, again, there's also a ton of potential. The Generation chefs and food writers today is more diverse and interesting and creative and wonderful and beautiful than has been historically, right? It's not just white male food critic in New York City that gets to attend fancy restaurants that's writing about food and influencing how people think. And exposure to more ideas. Obviously, I'm biased because I'm a university professor, but the more we're exposed to ideas, the more inclusive and supportive and the better the world can be. You've given me a huge amount to think about, but also, no, that does make sense. I I think about, for example, so the the newsletters that I read with regards to like the social perceptions of food, they they write a lot about. So they started off with like I think like food recommendations, but lately they've started to talk about production and food, which I think I thought was like really it was a really interesting like series of articles because it made me think about how I think I'm like one of those sort of like people middle class like white collar who's like very busy unfortunately and I don't think a lot like certainly not every day about the production of food like where it comes from and it made me think a lot about how like when you have psychological processes about food like that is and again it's quite specific but this is completely detached from me specifically as someone who lives in a city of a certain class has a certain type of job it's interesting that it's like it's I don't think it's something that like a, a mainstream like food coverage would do like a lot of the time here in like mainstream like publications it's it's mostly like food reviews or you know like interviews with like chefs for example and I think like a lot of that is perhaps down to the diversity of the staff that this like newsletter has which is really really interesting I think we're almost done but I just wanted to ask about the psychology of like production and food in like a lot of the developed world obviously it differs from like country to, to country so places like France or Italy for example might have like I think the general populace is more much more of a general like link psychologically from like how the food is produced to what they're eating but certainly I think in a lot of modern cities in my 
in my opinion anyway, like the production of food is kind of like divorced so completely from what you eat and, and also like how you think about it. Do you think that's going to accelerate or change <laughs> or perhaps go back with the advent of like a lot of people thinking about climate change now? Yeah. Oh, I'm hesitant to venture, I guess, on which direction it will go. I am. My concern is that it will go in both directions, but the outcomes won't actually be better. So as if we were to become more urbanized globally, then individuals are going to be further diverse from the production of food. I always think of the example of when individuals choose to be ethical vegetarians, right? They choose not to eat meat because of their personal ethos or morals. Typically, it's because of their direct consideration for the life of an animal, but chewing meat is extremely hard and physical work. And when we eat a sandwich, for instance, or eat at a restaurant, we don't necessarily consider all of the physical steps for the animal and the individual that butchered it and you know, took a cow and made it into beef, right? It's not a coincidence that the name of the animal and how we refer to most meats are separate terms. This is to help individuals morally consume animal proteins, for instance. At the same time, individuals who develop their own food ethos, while they have to choose what to care about, we can't all care about everything or else it would be a very overwhelming world, attention to the way that food workers and the animals that we consume are treated would absolutely have implications for how we choose to eat. Again, similar to my last response, I worry that this information just isn't available to everyone. Not everyone has the time and bandwidth in order to consider this. One thing I tell my students at the end of the quarter, we typically talk about geopolitical issues at the end and they can become overwhelmed or maybe feel a little bit pessimistic. Or, And I tell them, you know, you have to pick. You can't care about everything or else the world is, you know, can be a sad and scary place. So what is it that you're going to worry about? Whether it's, you know, supporting restaurant workers that don't necessarily earn the highest wages, or if it's ethical production of food, if it's more individual, what makes your own body feel good, you have to sort of pick which of these issues is going to be your big concern. People think about a lot is the overwhelm and not just with like food issues in general, just sort of like ethical issues. But obviously that's not something that I think we do obviously as individuals have some impact, but it's not all on us. And I think a lot of the time that's something that people forget. Thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. And Stephanie's book, A Guide to Psychology of Eating is available now. Thank you so much, Leanne. That's a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That was a pleasure. Take care.